0: Sound like I've been smoking. I'm a three pack a day. Lady. Oh, a little bit, actually. Yeah. I will try to be dulcet like a dolph.
1: Everybody here is ill. That's probably something that we should say. <coughs> Let it all out.
0: Shut up! <coughs> I hate you! Okay. You and I are in rough shape, now. Yeah,
1: I'm poorly.
0: Oh. <laughs> little dead arms, you poorly. Yeah. There's your.
1: There's you, there's you. Cold Cold open. open. Cold. (laughs) Only cold (laughs) open. uh, The common cold open.
0: Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature and maybe some mild swearing is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Queen Boudicca sitting across from me is Daniel. Oh, yeah, Lord Lover, yeah.
1: Buried under the McDonald's in um, Kings Norton. The Battle of Walling Street. It was somewhere around here, probably.
0: Do I get an introduction,
1: or...? Uh, sir, over there. Uh, I suppose he's the sort of American answer to Boudicca, isn't he? He's is Abby.
0: So, Daniel, what is our text today?
1: You said that we didn't get any letters, but we did. You were wrong. Did we? Yeah, we did get a letter. And then wanted a bit of advice. Yeah. Really?
0: We're agony aunts yeah, now. Yeah, now we're
1: agony aunts, yeah. Dear Abby and Daniel, I have a problem with my personal life and, and you to help me wrangle with it. It's specifically with my in-laws. My father-in-law is dying. My mother-in-law keeps prying into my personal life. My brother-in-law and his wife are eavesdropping on me and my husband. And my marriage, is at a sexual impasse. I'm worried about these things, you can't help me with them. The problem is that all of my in-laws have ridiculous first names. And I can't tolerate it anymore. Can you help? Um, well, listener, we won't be able to help, but we will be able to complement your experience with today's text, which is Tennessee Williams cannot improve. Written in 1955.
0: Right, so it goes without saying we are about to spoil this play for you. The trigger warnings are cancer, infertility, broken legs, alcoholism, suicide, a lot of off-color remarks. This is this is a rather um shockingly blue play if you've never read it, and a lot of closeted homosexuality and just kind of generally f- vibes oh yeah yeah so a little note on this you would expect a lot of queer readings in this text but because it's kind of on the surface they're not really readings it's just kind of what the play is overtly about so I'll just put in one blanket queer reading thing here just to cover our bases
1: interesting though that the plays about alcoholism so all those corks popping might (laughs) contribute to that
0: Again, right on the surface, though, so it's yeah. not really a, no, no, it's a not reading, a,
1: a subtextual thing. Yeah, I okay. never stopped you before, though.
0: <laughs> now, <laughs> would you like to do some background, friend?
1: Yes, I would, please, and thank you, Tennessee Williams. That's not his real name. I can't remember what it was now.
0: Oh, he got it all gussied up for Broadway.
1: Uh, he was a major 20th-century American playwright, M. Dash, and troubled soul.
0: You know you don't have to state your punctuation.
1: Okay. Tennessee Williams, he had a few difficulties in his life. His sister had kind of lots of mental health problems and was lobotomized in the 1940s. So he was kind of witness to all the kind of horrors of mid-century psychological treatment. He himself was a depressive and alcoholic. He was gay and had a kind of range of tumultuous relationships throughout his life. He died of a barbiturate overdose, so, yeah.
0: was the one who died choking on a cap?
1: That's him. I think that's a myth, though. I think the doctor put that to kind of obscure the fact that it was more likely suicide.
0: Oh, so interesting.
1: The plays—they're all kind of sort of Southern Gothic slash social issue plays, aren't they? They're kind of—they're quite hard to categorize. I wrote here tragedies of manners. I don't know. That's just that's my own little
0: take. I coined a term myself. On. Um, later on, I'll tell you this now, since you're bringing it up here. But in in the casting bit, I was trying to think of. How best to categorize this? I call this a screwball tragedy.
1: <laughs> that's even better. Yeah, I like that. That is what it is, isn't it? Yeah.
0: I'm sure I'm not the first person to get there. I'm sure somebody else has coined that term.
1: The other play that we all probably know is A Streetcar Named Desire. More kind of faded Southern Belle stuff. Glass Menagerie, that's quite a famous one. 1934, that's quite an early work. It kind of retells the lives of his um, the relationship of his awful mother and his kind of mad sister. Being a Southern Belle it all, all it's cracked up to be, I think, is the general message of his plays. You know, and I can confirm that from personal experience. <laughs> um, you
0: do look divine, Daniel oh, thank May. thank you. I think
1: that's very kind of you.
0: The one thing that really surprised me about this play is the, the frank discussions of sexuality. Some of them are really rather blatant for what we'd expect from 1955. And I think it's important to remember that in this period many if not most incarnations of queerness were actually considered psychological disorders so you could actually be forcibly hospitalized for being gay so this is it's really rather daring I think sometimes to commit this to paper is it 1973 in America that I think it was about 70- the DSM yeah yep yeah, but r- rather scary stuff to admit so frankly in this period Yeah. Mm-hmm. We open on a plantation house on the Mississippi Delta. A beautiful summer evening, the 1950s. The house was once owned by a pair of nudge-nudge-wink-wink wink, confirmed bachelors in the 19th century. Wait, what? The stage directions tell us. Does it
1: tell us the 19th century?
0: Yes. Okay, carry on. Well, I think quite late yeah, 19th century late. through the early 20th. Yeah. But now the plantation is owned by Big Daddy and his family. We open on the bedroom of Maggie and Brick. That's right, Brick. Brick is taking a shower, and Maggie is just screaming at him that one of those, quote, no-neck monsters hit her with a hot buttered biscuit, which sounds like some sort of innuendo, but God only knows what sex act that could even describe. So Brick comes out of the shower, and he's like, what's happening? And she screams that one of Brick's brother, Goopers, gooper one of his bratty kids has thrown food at her and ruined her dress anyway maggie goes on to a very long rant about how goopers kids all have no necks all people with no necks are monsters how can they scream so loud if they don't have necks because where's their voice box located how can you ring their necks if they don't have necks to ring and on and on and on maggie talks a lot just real stream of consciousness stuff And Brick is like, hey, Lin-Manuel Veranda, is there a volume lower than mute, please? So, we're
1: at Big Daddy's plantation. It's Big Daddy's birthday. Brick and Maggie and Goopa, and his wife and kids, they're visiting for the birthday. We can kind of infer from a lot of the discussion that Big Daddy is not really much of a fan of his grandchildren, the No-Neck Monsters. (laughs) Uh, And... Gooper's wife, May, she can sense that her father-in-law is not a fan. But she still has the advantage over Maggie and Brick that she has children and that they don't have any yet. So there's a kind of um, tension between the favoritism toward Brick versus the kind of dynastic duty met by Gooper in having had kids. That's the sort of, that's the big tension of the play, isn't it?
0: How many kids do they have? I forgot. Is it five kids and she's pregnant again?
1: There's twins. All I remember is there's twins called Dixie and Trixie.
0: But I think, I think there are there's five lot, kids and yeah. she's pregnant again. Yeah. I guess uh, somebody doesn't have a TV in the bedroom.
1: <laughs> Maggie is concerned that May and Gooper are going to try to get uh, Big Daddy to cut Brick out of his will because we think that Big Daddy's dying of cancer. That's the other big tension, isn't it? The, the brothers are rivals and the rivalry is heating up because their dad is dying.
0: It's Succession, Delta Dirtbag edition. Maggie also refers to May as a monster of fertility, because isn't she like perpetually pregnant? She's like a Russian nesting doll. Yes. I really hate May as a character, which I suppose is a sign that she's well-written. Yeah, you're meant to hate her, aren't you? She's a woman with polite hair, and I don't know why I think that, (laughs) and I don't know how to describe it, and I won't be taking any questions, but you know what I mean. So we are in it and i actually really like this opening because we're just kind of thrown into a lot of family drama and grievances immediately as you would be i i really hate it when stories start too tidily so significantly brick is really just not engaging with his wife at all he's just completely shut down like a brick wall i really hate that tennessee williams named him brick i just can we just agree that that's tacky or like
1: (laughs) You're swimming, when you get your swimming certificate and you better get a brick from the bottom of a pool. <laughs> Maggie's like that. She's trying to get that brick from the bottom of the, the drink.
0: Hark at you. Look at that little, yeah, Maggie and yeah. the lifeguard reading. Yeah, Can swimming get...
1: certificate reading. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so brick is just a depressed himbo gone to sea. I'll give a kind of himbo reading here, although I hate it when himbos are sad. (laughs) Yeah, because they don't know really how to articulate it, as we will see. Yes. (laughs) He is, yes, he is a himbo, isn't he? Brick has also got a broken leg, and he's recently quit his job and has broken his ankle by drunkenly jumping hurdles at three o'clock in the morning at the local high school track. So just a lot of demons to unpack here.
1: Should have been... In
0: the maths corridor, shouldn't they? <laughs> J- Mathletes is where I really shined in high school. Maggie just talks a lot in general, and she opens with this absolute wall of text about all the schemes that she thinks Gooper and may have to get Brick sent to rehab. So Brick is a bit of a drinker, and he's been trying to drown his sorrows, but those f***ers learned the backstroke, and we're not quite sure why he's a drinker. It's over something so maggie thinks may and gooper are trying to get power of attorney over brick and thereby get their hands on all the family money but maggie says don't you worry big daddy dotes on brick and she thinks that big daddy that dirty old man kind of has the hots for her she also talks a lot of shit about may's family and about how they're not that hot in society Maggie is frankly a giant bitch, and I love her. Just picture a vintage Barbie, but 35 and Mina's dirt, and you have Maggie. And Tola.
1: Brick, he's not very impressed by um, Maggie's spiel, and he looks at her in a way that she says freezes up her blood. Maggie says that she's lonely. Here we get a little... Lying from her Living with someone you love Can be lonelier than living entirely alone
0: That's right Daniel Play to the cheap seat
1: <laughs> <laughs> If the one that you love Doesn't love you So <laughs> She also brings up Someone named Skipper
0: Nice Another name Another
1: funny name Yeah Something mysterious Happened to Skipper We don't know what Maggie says That Brick was always A tremendous lay mm. so He was very good in bed Largely because He was so indifferent To having sex with so, us you know, for him it was just Sort of You know
0: mechanical process, I guess.
1: Punch in and out, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Don't quite know what that means. Uh... You
0: know exactly what that means. Okay, so he's indifferent to having sex with her. Waterboarding could not get that admission out of me, and here she is not only freely giving that up, but using it to flirt.
1: It's because you're a frosty northern isn't it we're in the we're in the deep south now she says that if brick were to tell her they would never have sex again she would stab herself in the heart (laughs) yeah it's quite fraught a lot of intense energy the sense of a contest going on it's almost like a sort of bout isn't it like a boxing match Mm. i like that at the same time we can hear a croquet game going on outside so that's very genteel so there's a bit of a slightly heavy-handed conjunction of the genteel game versus this kind of nasty one and they talk about Victory. What Maggie's victory is by staying on as long as she can. It's the victory of a cat on a tin roof. Why does she do it? She's just staying on it, I guess, as long as she can. So that's the gist there.
0: Don't base your marital decisions on cat logic. A cat has no concept of holy matrimony. A cat is a fool.
1: He says very bluntly that she has forgotten the conditions they agreed on for him to stay living with her. She says that they're not living together, they're just occupying the same cage.
0: Sounds like the sort of contract you have to sign when you marry Tom Cruise. (laughs) So May, the horrible sister-in-law, bursts in and stops the fight between Maggie and Brick and she and Maggie are just real catty to each other. It's very like, bitch better get out of my way, bitch. Brick just continues to be unimpressed because he likes his marriage like he likes his drinks, on the rocks. (laughs) So after May leaves, Brick urges Maggie to take a lover, and he says he feels embarrassed for her. And Maggie won't leave him. She's like, Brick, I love you like you love liquor. Uh, Can we all talk about May showing off about her kids?
1: The kitties put on a show, Polly played the piano, Buster and Sonny drums, and then they turned out the lights and Dixie and Trixie performed the toe dance in fairy costume with sparklers. Big Daddy just beamed. And then uh, Maggie responds, but why'd you give dogs' names to all your your kitties? So, there you go, that's the sort of... Uh... <laughs> That's the kind of passive-aggressive to actually aggressive uh, kind of relationship (laughs) that she has with May.
0: Do you think that Gooper and May have dogs that are named really normal things, like Diane and Gerald? Yeah, (laughs) Stephen. So Big Mama, who is Brick and Gooper's mother, in case you couldn't context clues that (laughs) for yourself, she comes in announcing, Hey everybody, Big Daddy doesn't actually have cancer, he just has, quote... A spastic colon. Great. What a wonderful thing to announce to everyone. A spastic colon is the name of a ska band I just formed for us.
1: All right. Like, force me.
0: Oh, force me? I forgot about that.
1: Can I just ask a question about Big Mama? Is she big, or did she just take Big Daddy's name?
0: Why? What do you think?
1: I think it's uh, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. I think they both were already called big.
0: You have to get married at that point. Yeah,
1: exactly, yeah. So There's only like one woman in Mississippi big enough to marry <laughs> big <baby>
0: daddy. <laughs> She's the size of a Zeppelin, and I love her. <laughs> so Big Mama and Maggie have a bit of an argument, because is there anyone Maggie hasn't fought with yet? And big mama says maggie's always going off on the no neck monsters she's mad at maggie for not having kids yet she's mad at maggie because brick drinks and apparently that's maggie's fault and she insinuates that maggie is bad at sex and just the level of dysfunction is off the charts what do you care what your son's sex life is just oh it's creepy it's
1: actually very important
0: (laughs) and maggie's like it's not my fault my husband is broken
1: Have you tried turning him off and turning him back on again?
0: Turning him off? Yes, that has been established.
1: Uh, uh. When Big Mama comes in initially, she's cross because the door is locked to, to, to their bedroom. It's all set just in uh, Maggie and Brick's bedroom, isn't it? And Big Mama says, I hate, locked doors in a house. And there's a lot of that sort of stuff about privacy and people intruding on privacy, isn't there, throughout the
0: place. Son, I need to check that you're consummating to make sure you're doing it all exactly. right. After Big Mama leaves, Brick finally comes out of the bathroom where he's been hiding, and he just takes a big slug of bourbon. My favorite thing about the Deep South is that everything is measured in slugs. Yeah. So... <laughs> As she sees him drinking again, Maggie begs him to look at how perky her boobs are. Just, honey, what you're selling, he ain't buying. So she, you know, clearly is just trying to make him jealous. She talks about how the guys in their social circle keep trying to have sex with her. And Brick is totally checked out. He's like, you should let them. So she screams that she's going to stay on that hot tin roof. By which she means stay with him and make him love her as long as she can. Look, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, Maggie. He is just not that into you because, spoiler, he is a big closeted homo. Well, we
1: can talk about this more, mm-hmm. but I think there's more, something more complicated going on. That's He's fine. definitely not interested in sex, though. I think that's...
0: Well, regardless, this plan of Maggie's, what is this going to get her except liver disease and more disdain and nothing? The... Oh, you think it's all about the loot? Yeah. It's all about making that paper, making the, it rain. Let the
1: record show that I am robbing He's doing the, the, the kind of money the
0: money fingers.
1: Maggie reveals to Brick that Big Mama is mistaken. She's convinced that Big Daddy has not got a spastic colon, that he is in fact dying of cancer. And then she kind of talks a little bit how much she always liked him for his lack of pretension. That said, she always says she says that the dying have to fool themselves. However authentic Big Daddy m- may be, how- however much of a true Mississippi redneck he is, even now he's incredibly rich, even he's kind of not being fully honest with his own physical states. So that's interesting. You know. Do
0: you think she likes him just because he has a neck? People out there who are studying this text, do an essay on the use of necks.
1: Yes. Yeah, that would be good though. I like that. So Big Daddy was, a little backstory. Big Daddy was just the overseer of the plantation when it belonged to the two quote-unquote confirmed bachelors but he eventually kind of uh, acquired it from them and turned it into a very wealthy piece of property the most valuable acres the side of the, <laughs> the valley nile so he <laughs> keeps saying that he keeps comparing it to the nile denial there you go there's another little uh crap reading for the students she's nervous because big daddy hasn't yet made a will mm. uh, so we're back to the whole inheritance to her
0: yeah probate party of five your table be ready and in- Two months or yeah, however long he has. Yeah.
1: Maggie goes off a bit, a bit on her own history. She comes from a good family of uh, a respectable Southern Mississippi family, but her, but her daddy was a drinker.
0: Everybody's daddy was a drinker.
1: She grew up poor, uh, and her family had to try and keep up appearances. so all the old Southern belle quandary. And uh, she tells Brick that she's sorry she had sex with Skipper. What? Yeah. Just a little. throw that out there. Turns out. The bad blood between them has some qualifying factors. So she and Skipper, she claims, both loved Brick. Brick shut them out or something. So
0: they had sex with each other to feel closer to Brick. Yeah, that's, that's the phrase. The way to a man's heart is through his best friend's genitals. Yeah. I think you know, that old chestnut. So the prefab joke I have written here, this is, this is a bit one for the young people. This is some young people slang, is Maggie is an intrusive thought. T-H-O-T. I was pretty proud of that maggie recalls when she and brick used to double date with skipper and his girlfriend and she could always tell that she and the other girlfriend were more or less beards for the two of them the real date was happening between brick and skipper and yet you married this dude knowing what you were getting into Brick says that what he and Skipper had was good and pure and she's trying to make it dirty and sordid. I don't want to live in a world where one guy can't be desperately in love with another guy without someone making it gay, not in my America.
1: See, I know you're taking the piss but I really think that is what it is. I think there's a kind of I think there is a sort of non-sexual love that Brick thought that he had with Skipper and then.
0: Daniel, how many male friends do you have? That you are filled with a white-hot longing over. <laughs> you are the straightest man I have ever met in my life. I
1: don't think so.
0: I do. Okay, wow.
1: didn't know.
0: It's I an left... emblem of Like you're just really comfortable in your masculinity and... Am I? Wow, God. Yeah, There's obviously It's coming you out, ain't it? God. Or not. Um,
1: <laughs> uh, I didn't even know.
0: But how many of your male friend's shoulders do you touch with... Conditions of plausible longing. <laughs> um, How many do you double date with and really the two of you are like feeding, you know, spooning chocolate cake into each other's mouths and things. And- well, I a
1: few times. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought it was just, that's what I'm saying. I always thought it was just, it doesn't have to be mm. anymore. Just I'm satisfied with the cake. Maggie says to Brick, you and Skipper had something that had to be kept on ice. Yes, incorruptible. Yes. And death was the only icebox where you could keep it
0: This is just to say, I have f***ed the skipper that was in the (laughs) icebox, and which you were probably saving for the late 1960s. Forgive me, he was delicious, so sweet, and so cold. So yeah, Brick is pretty pissed off about all of this, and he says... He's going to kill Maggie. He's going to bludgeon her to death with his crutch. And she's like, who are you kidding, Cracker Bones? Get out of here. Come back when you break something cool like the fourth wall. Cracker Bones is not my joke. I just really love that expression.
1: Maggie says, a while back, she had told Skipper either to admit his love for Brick or leave Brick alone. Because, you know, she's sick of the whole Will They Won't They closeted thing. Skipper's response was to attempt to seduce Maggie to prove to her that he was straight. One way of getting someone to bed, I suppose. Um, (laughs) He's completely psychologically shattered after the experience of going to bed with Maggie. Brick goes insane at this revelation and starts flailing around at Maggie with his crutches, trying to hit her. Brick's like, you such a fresh... He's kind of motley, it. You such a fresh eating young... How dare you... Do you know, insult the name of my erstwhile partner. Are,
0: are we going to fuck or what? Is this foreplay? It's, it's been so long.
1: I'm going to continue to rail and uh, remonstrate against the
0: Oh yeah, just where I hope this evening was headed. We've established I'm into this. You know, treat him mean, keep him keen. Yeah, Maggie
1: likes. They've all, they're all, they're all got that weird... Pegadillos, haven't they?
0: One of the no-neck monsters bursts in on Brick trying to murder Maggie. So, you know, let's carry this therapy into the next generation. And this little brat ridicules Maggie for not being able to have kids. I'm just with Maggie on this one. Just, oh my god, you hateful bitch. You're just mad because you can't have kids. And she says like I would punt that child out the window.
1: The kids are always bursting in, though, aren't they? Like, mm-hmm. Playing with their little guns and things, aren't they? So I think and they're meant to kind of be this sort of intrusive presence in that house like they're a dog
0: named greek chorus but the goddamn candy man these little kids that's what they are this kind of malevolent presence <laughs>
1: that's why that's why it's more psychological maybe than a greek chorus they like they like your intrusive thoughts
0: when they take the little girl out, Maggie reveals she's been to a gynecologist and she has no reproductive issues that actual peen and vagine sex couldn't fix. And, hey, honey, I'm ovulating now, so could you please freak me nasty? And I'm just sitting there going, honey, he is at least four drinks and four fights deep. I Perfect time. Don't, no, uh, you sure? Oh, you don't think so. I just don't think it's going to be happening tonight. So that's the end of Act One big daddy
1: yeah you heard about him he's here so big daddy comes in he's annoyed because he has to make nice with the reverend yeah reverend Tucker. he's here you know that guy he's been invited to dinner and is sniffing around for money to be left to the church after big daddy dies everyone is there they get a bit rowdy loud and obnoxious they're all whooping and hollering like
0: they're stardust cowboy exactly, it's, yeah. yeah
1: getting cards and letters from people they don't even know <clears throat> There's a rhinestone cowboy. It's different. Um, big... There's one for the... What's this Glen Campbell fans out there? Um, big Mama. She's up to her usual tricks. She grabs Reverend Tooker and pulls him onto her lap. She's notorious for this sort of inelegant horseplay. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a bad party. Maggie is dryly amused by it all because, we read in the stage directions, which I like, she's the only one there who's conscious of and amused by the grotesque.
0: <laughs> she's so. there writing her thesis? Yeah. How how the post-Bellum South's resolution into tipage is a clear return of commedia dell'arte. <laughs>
1: I like that. That sounds like a thesis I would like to read. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So Oh, that's great. Oh, I know you're just taking the piss, but that, I feel like that really... <laughs> The Bactinian reading of uh, the play. It lends itself to that.
0: You're such a nerd.
1: Thank you. Big Daddy
0: turns into a jerk.
1: I didn't write this. I'm not going to say that. Big Daddy is a bit of an ass, isn't he? He asks Brick how he hurt himself. He makes a big point with Brick's crutch.
0: Running away from his problems, running away from his marriage. Take your pick, really. <laughs> Brick repeats that he had been jumping
1: hurdles at the high school track, and Big Daddy says, are you sure... Or had you had some sort of sex accident while getting yourself a bit of poon uh, That is actually what's in the play. That's not Daniel being crude. With another woman out at the <clears throat> high school. The careers guidance counselor or something, mm. I don't
0: know. So everyone sort of scatters a little bit, and Brick and Big Daddy meet up, and they have a heart-to-heart, and they talk about how gross everyone's greed is, how May and Maggie are really similar deep down, and how they kind of detest all of the women in the families. Uh, and Big Daddy also says, uh, creepily, that May is a good breeder. Yeah. Which I... Uh, you you said here that wives are meddlesome cattle. I think... um I wonder about the sort of yeah. slur breeder, the semi-slur like yeah. from queer communities for heterosexual ones. I
1: think that's, that's definitely an ambiguity. Yeah, I, I... like that. That's I think there's a double meaning Because there's like a sort of being a breeder. It's a takedown from a heteronormative and from like a kind of... Mm. yeah. Homosexual subculture from both Vantages.
0: I wrote that I'm giving Big Daddy a queer reading here because Apparently when one of the Two confirmed bachelors who Used to own the place died where Big Daddy was just the overseer He got a promotion from being an Overseer to becoming the other one's Quote unquote partner and then He inherited the place Sky's the limit under the stars and bars Baby Work it, Queen. Was he known as Daddy then? <laughs> oh. <laughs> then Big Daddy reminisces about his tour of Europe with Big Mama years back, and how Europe is just one big fire sale, and how they bought and bought and bought expensive old stuff in Europe, stuff they didn't even need. So it's a very, like, new world v- versus old world thing.
1: I like that bit where he says that some of the stuff they have is still in the... Basement and the basement flooded, so all this, yeah. all this kind of priceless Rococo <laughs> has been completely ruined. Good, I think. There's nothing, there's nothing more southern gothic or uh, implicitly homosexual than a decaying Chippendale. Is <laughs> um, there male strippers?
0: Yeah, you, oh, thank you. But for it's
1: also a type of posh desk.
0: The, <laughs> the one thing Big Daddy can't buy, though, with his ten million dollars that he apparently has, did you measure in worth this? Yes. Did you? No. I thought any historical statement of somebody's worth, you would just be like, Sandy from Greece, go and tell me about it, stud. So the one thing Big Daddy can't buy with the $10 million he has... A dinosaur. A man's life. okay. I mean, never mind the slave trade and the sharecropping situation where he very much did buy people's lives. No, no, no. We don't need to worry about that.
1: He talks about, um... Interestingly, when he talks about this trip to Europe, he talks about all the kind of exploitation and the kind of priests all kind of getting rich off the kind of European peasants and stuff. So clearly he, he has this kind of pretend sort of political volition.
0: This janky little power bottom, I want him to work a little less sometimes.
1: Big Daddy enjoys having a little heart to heart with his son, and he's even slightly randified.
0: He's slightly what?
1: Randified. Oh, oh Up you're... Up for it, game. He's a man. Uh Well, <laughs> it's he, indeed. Um, he wants. He wants some women. He hasn't had sex with Big Mama for the last five years, and he didn't even really like having sex with Big Mama. Big Daddy brags about his sexual performance. No. Nope.
0: Shut it down. Oh, okay,
1: right. I think you're telling me no.
0: No, well, I'm just, I, don't, I don't even want you to recount this.
1: He's like, now I'm recovered from my uh, complaint. Which, as we all remember, is not cancer and is definitely merely the well known condition of the spastic colon. Now he's recovered, he's gonna pick himself a choice woman, strip her naked and smother her and minx, choke her with diamonds, and hump her from hell to breakfast. Breakfast? That's a little breakfast uh, jingle.
0: I love that the tiniest hint of food in a text and you're like, let's party, bitch. Yeah.
1: They kind of enjoy each other's company for a bit, but it starts turning ugly quite quickly. Big Daddy. Steals Brick's crutch and refuses rude. to give it. Yeah, that is rude. Refuses to give it back until Brick tells him why he drinks.
0: God, he sure buys a lot of alcohol. I hope he's not a shopaholic.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the crutch thing. There's a bit of a find the phallus thing there, especially with Big Daddy taking the crutch off Brick. Brick is this kind of uh, oh yeah for sure sexless kind of uh, repressed, repressed kind of yeah neurotic type, and then Big Daddy kind of going on about having sex with people and taking this big wow. Well,
0: the, the thing that gives you mobility and agency, <laughs> exactly, which yeah, is, yeah. you know, shorthand for masculinity. Yet yeah, Big Daddy is a better straight and a better gay than Brick. That's...
1: It's hard that when you dad. <laughs> Both of those than you. Um.
0: I think there's very much a class and time reading in terms of Brick and his father. So Brick has more this sense of being a gentleman because he's born into it. It's almost his birthright. Mm. Even though your father isn't because the father worked his way up the social ladder and created these conditions. But this also means that Brick, because he's in this sort of false sense of sort of nobility, even though it's you know, is only one generation deep, it means he's more stuck in the past than Big Daddy, who's more willing to sort of just go with it.
1: I think it. I think you're definitely right, but I think it's even more complicated than that. It's not just that he's... It's not quite that he's stuck in the past, but I think it's that sense that you've been born to a, a rank rather than having, yeah, create, mm-hmm. been an agent, a master of your own sort of fate. Yeah. But your explicit consciousness of your dad, who is very much not the nobility that you purport mm-hmm. to be and have been born to completely undermines that every day that you see your dad. I think it's like that, isn't yeah. it? Like it's not about being stuck in the past. It's about seeing that your present is a lie through your
0: dad. Yeah, well and that leads us to our next big quotation. Yes,
1: let's let's talk. Um after a little bit of tussling, Brick screams that he drinks out of disgust, disgust at living a lie.
0: Which works on several levels as yes, you're talking indeed, about. Indeed, yeah.
1: yeah. Big Daddy's like, Well we all live lies. I pretended to care for Big Mama, even later regular as a piston. Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know, he was having sex with Pistons, I don't know. He also says he pretended to love that son of a bitch Gooper, <laughs> his own boy.
0: That's terrible, yeah, isn't it? What a prick. No, no, Gooper's a fucking dial tone. will appear. Okay. Big
1: Daddy remarks that Brick started drinking when his friend Skipper died.
0: Maybe a little bit more than friends... Son, I've seen Sailor Moon. I know what friend means. (laughs) Yep. The idea of Big Daddy watching Sailor Moon is an image that I cradle near and dear to my heart. Brick starts to get upset about all of this, and Big Daddy basically says, Hey, son, we've all bottomed in our youth, including me, who hasn't done a little butt stuff with their guy friends. He
1: doesn't explicitly say that. Well, he He says says... He says, I've bummed. Uh-huh. That could have a number of meanings.
0: Well, it? my note here is, reader, my jaw hit the floor. Big Daddy is a bisexual hero for the ages. Slay, Queen! I really think... We had a little fight in our yeah, notes I don't. Here. Yeah, I think... He says that
1: he's bombed. He says that he, he's... Because he, he used to be poor, right? That's what he's saying. He's mm-hmm. like, I used to be poor, I used to be... Um...
0: God knows a playwright has never had a double meaning. Let alone a queer one. You can't use the you, word
1: bomb. Hey, you can't have it both ways. I know that you think the play is shallow. It can't, <laughs> it can't be both.
0: Double meaning is not that deep, Daniel.
1: Well, maybe the, not this one.
0: Him and that old gay guy who owned the plantation before. You know they did it in the corn crib.
1: That's perfect <laughs> material for one of those awful prequels that you get these days. Yes. It's the Big Daddy prequel. Yes. In, Peter Ocello.
0: And there, there'd be some sort of like heavily symbolic, like, peeling of corn or, like, picking of cotton or something like that, just, like, very overt. Brick loses his mind about all of this gay stuff, and he's like, "'Dad, Skipper and I did not do a sodomy together, thank you very much.'" He is just furious that two healthy, handsome men can't have a, quote, real, real, deep, deep friendship that's respectable and clean. He's like, hey, can't one dude just have a Helga Pataki-style shrine to another dude in his closet without it being weird and gay? And Prick goes off about how, sure, maybe they were soulmates, and maybe they shared hotel rooms, and maybe they touched each other's shoulders casually with white-hot longing, but there's nothing queer about it. He But he says...
1: <laughs> I don't know why I'm really pushing this. It's like, I have no r- special stakes in Brick not being gay. However, he says that the purity of their relationship, purity in his terms, of course, is precisely what made it not normal. He thinks that homosexuality is normal, but he thought that his relationship with Skipper was something different to that.
0: I don't know that he thought. Well, I'm going to... Kind of agree with you here Mm. because what he had with Skipper was so healthy, and all of his heterosexual relationships are so dysfunctional. And those are the only ones, obviously, in 1955 that are being modeled for him. And in the 50s, we were real big on all that sort of like parental modeling and you know, what children see. That I think he associates a healthy relationship with being somehow disturbed.
1: Brick says that he could never truly love Maggie, and she knew it. And because she knew it, she tried to poison his friendship with Skipper by convincing Skipper he was gay.
0: Ah, oh, the liberal agenda! I found yes. it.
1: Yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, She got made him. She, she convinced him he was gay, and then had to convince.
0: Duh. Duh? Duh duh. I'm Daniel, I got a head cold. Yeah. I'm real stupid when I got a head cold.
1: Exactly. Maggie tried to poison his friendship with Skipper by convincing Skipper he was gay, but then thereby convincing him to prove that he wasn't gay by sleeping with her, but when he couldn't, you know... Perform. Yeah, seal the deal. Skipper recognized that that must be proof that he is gay he turned to drink and shortly afterwards s- suicided himself
0: as opposed to suicided somebody else
1: oh have you seen that nasty
0: <laughs> well i it's it's pretty ambiguous about how skipper dies so the implication is that he committed suicide but they also seem to slightly imply that he did it through Drinking, or like he died from drinking. So I'm not sure if this is like a Hendrix style thing, or like if he did a like leaving Las Vegas sort of situation. Big Daddy calls bullshit on all of this. He says it sounds like Brick is leaving something out of the story. And Brick's like, oh, before he died, Skipper called me and we talked through some stuff, and I hung up on him. Anyway, can I misdirect you over here? And Big Daddy said, sp- Where?
1: Oh, it worked on me. <laughs>
0: Big Daddy says this is all Brick's fault and that Brick would rather drive Skipper to his own death than look truth in the eye. Brick basically puts his fingers in his ears and is like, la la la, shut up, you're dying. They're lying about the medical report. You have cancer and shut up. And Big Daddy loses it and bursts out of the room screaming that the whole family is a bunch of liars. Question, who are these physicians that are talking to the family and not directly to Big Daddy? I mean, is somebody being bribed here? Is That's
1: a, naughty, uh, isn't it? I feel like a doctor shouldn't... Well, I'm, where's your hypocritical th-
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Kickback.
1: So, it's Act 3. Yeah, Act 2 is just Brick and Big Daddy, pretty much. Big Daddy goes missing. They assume he's just gone to bed, or he's off talking to Brick somewhere. Uh, the family are all marvelling about how much he ate for his tea. Cornbread. <laughs> with molasses, don't forget the molasses, it's very dry otherwise, and harp and Jar, and I had to look that up, it's a sort of kind of uh, rice dish. Brick finally appears, he gets another drink. Family's all like, oh God, he's been drinking too much. He only drinks until he feels the click in his head that puts him at peace, and he hasn't had that click yet. Sounds healthy. The family doctor, Dr. Boar, he's been milling around the party in the background, him and Reverend Tucker. He sits down with Big Mama, Gooper and May. Big Daddy, Brick and Maggie are out of the room. At this point, they sit her down and tell her that Big Daddy actually does have cancer. Big Mama cries out for Brick, Where is my only son? What?
0: Jesus. Yeah.
1: She wants to be comforted by her only son. Gooper,
0: well... The f*** did you just say, Big Mama? Needless to
1: say, Gooper is not pleased with his mum saying that. The Reverend... (laughs) (laughs) The Reverend and the Doctor are like, well, I'll be
0: leaving now. That's a funny bit. This is the point? This is your line? After everything we've just seen? Okay. So Gooper thinks it's time for Big Daddy to start taking morphine, which I think my, my sinister reading of this whole thing is... That's Gooper's way of getting power of attorney faster. And then May is like, oh, I've taken a course on giving injections. I can give Big Daddy his morphine injections. And again, I think that's shorthand for her accidentally wanting to kill him. No,
1: I think they're concerned for the old, odious individual.
0: (laughs) So Big Mama declares that they need to go get Brick sobered up so he can take over running the plantation. And Gooper and May exchange worried looks.
1: May can be witty. Let's not all be down on May. I like May. I think May's the heroine of the piece. <laughs> She's like, Gooper has always had to carry loads of responsibilities. Brick never carried a thing in his life, but a football
0: or a highball.
1: <laughs>
0: highball is my favorite Chichin Chong Regency drama. So Gooper, who it turns out is a corporate lawyer in the city, he has brought his briefcase to this family party and he he brings that out and he starts discussing how jealousy is of brick and how he's going to guarantee that he gets his fair deal and everything so he just like brings out all this paperwork for a trusteeship and he's just like fondling this paperwork like he's about to buy a breakfast in the morning
1: i think that's just responsible <laughs> I, think, I think goop is a good son
0: so none of the family is having Gooper's whole, you know, trusteeship thing. Maggie sees her chance now to consolidate their position and roust Gooper once and for all. So everyone's like, "Gooper, you're gross." Maggie's like, "Now's my time. Now's my moment." She makes an announcement. She and Brick are going to have a baby.
1: What? Baby Claxon? Get a baby Claxon in here right uh, now, please.
0: And everyone stops dead in what I like to call. A pregnant pause. May doesn't believe a word of it because she's been eavesdropping and she clearly has heard that they have not had sex in a very long time. Big Mama is...
1: Could have... Well, anyway. Carry on.
0: Could have... Go on. Finish your ostensibly dirty thought. I think that's why you probably (laughs) cut off there. Go on.
1: Turkey basters. I feel like American kitchens are just crowned with turkey basters.
0: (laughs) Turkey baster, Daniel. You nasty. So Big Mama is delighted... Thinking in the most. Uh, in the biggest mental gymnastics I've seen, that a child will make Brick stop drinking. Yes, that's why all those moms do wine o'clock, because traditionally children don't stress you out. Then Maggie pours Brick a big drink. Again, honey, if you're hoping to have sex tonight, not the best move. May and
1: Gooper <laughs> say Maggie is lying because they haven't heard her pregnancy confirmed. By the doctor. Oh, you fucking creeps! Maggie says that she went to another gynaecologist elsewhere, someone, someone you don't know, a, f- a friend of a friend's gynaecologist. My
0: gynaecologist, who lives in Canada.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, group is like, well, who was this f- so-called Canadian gynaecologist? <laughs> I want to find out.
0: When your brother-in-law starts asking about the details of your cooter, it is time to cut this fucking family off.
1: They leave, and Maggie thanks Brick for not correcting her in front of everyone about the fake baby. Yeah, the baby's not real. Brick has a few more bevies.
0: Three shots in a row. We're on the shots part of the evening. Yeah. And he says, I'm
1: going to sleep on the couch tonight, darling. You know you can sleep in a bed and not have sex. Um... Well, maybe, like just yeah, like pillows. he did with Skipper, supposedly. <laughs> um,
0: put some pillows down the line of the bed or yeah, whatever. What, because
1: you accidentally... <laughs> well, anyway, let's <that's> not... <laughs> on that. He, um, he finally found the click that makes him feel at peace. Hooray! You see, it's got a happy ending after all. Um, Maggie's like, come on, I'm ovulating. I'm going to lock away all the liquor, you know, after the horse has bolted, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> and she throws away Brick's crutch and says... I'll only give you your booze and your crutch back after we have conceived a child. Uh,
0: Sexual slavery much, Maggie?
1: It's, it's all part of the, the fun. Brick doesn't resist the idea. And she's like, I curse the weak, beautiful people. For example, Brick himself. But I love you. And Brick's like, wouldn't that be funny if it were true? So that's the end of that. Fun and
0: lucks. You know what? I really have hope for them. I just wanted to compliment you on your accent.
1: Uh, my English one.
0: Your English one is lovely, yes. Just didn't Daniel do a good job, everybody? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Casting, please. Casting? Casting. This is where I talked originally about this being a screwball tragedy, and I was trying to think about directors who already do that kind of film. This would make a great Cohen Brothers film Yeah, um, because they handle both Sorry. drama and comedy really well and there's a lot of repetition in their work already. So I would love to see somebody like Luke Evans as Brick, um, Francis McDormand as Big Mama, John Goodman as Big Daddy, and if they were a little bit younger, if we could have made this just a few years ago, George Clooney and Holly Hunter as Gooper and May because they both play uptight dorks really, really yes. well. I don't I don't have anybody cast for Maggie particularly I think it that could be it could, could be anyone it could be whatever Hollywood starlet maybe, maybe you yeah. oh me mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I've always
1: depended on the kindness of uh, people with good taste in my performances
0: you'd be beautiful you'd be okay. maybe Scarlett Johansson because she's actually quite good I would
1: at, be playing Scarlett Johansson though. no oh she would be Maggie she'd be Maggie well who would I be then Reverend Tucker
0: you, obviously that's a, that's if you were going
1: to be my vestments are drenched
0: <laughs> If you were going to be anyone you'd be reverend Tucker. a massive
1: demotion from maggie to reverend Tucker.
0: why would you want to play maggie
1: because it's the main role it's the eponymous role uh i'm good at the voice uh, <laughs> it, i mean is this like an interview why would you want to play maggie yeah this uh, is an
0: audition i i didn't want to scare you but these past 21 episodes have all <laughs> been an extended lead it, up to this moment. It's, it was an extended screen test
1: An audio screen test.
0: You have to get the voice on. She's a talker. That's the important Uh, thing.
1: I share a taste for the grotesque, um, and a a slightly bitchy sense of humour. Can't believe that me, John Goodman, John Greatman, uh, some other people.
0: Well, look, I suppose I cast myself in the crucible. You should be allowed to cast. Yes, yes,
1: exactly. That's disgraceful. The difference
0: is, David Tennant and I would make magic together, and I'd be really good in that role. (laughs) So, Daniel, you know that I have strong feelings about Tennessee Williams. Do you think this was a masterpiece or a disaster piece? Oh, you didn't like this? I, I'm not sure how I felt about it. Is this really good or is this really hammy?
1: I think it's the blend of, like, naturalism. Hmm. Or, like, su- supposed sort of a sense of, like, a real relationships between people and real kind of settings and these kind of completely outsized crazy caricature characters. Okay. I think that weird blend almost is the crux of the play, is what saves it, as well as it being okay. its chief shortcoming. I think, didn't, I don't know, I can't remember precisely what he said, but I think the whole point of the play is it's just like a slice of life. It's like mm-hmm. literally in time. Like That's why we the exposition is ostensibly quite limited, and that's why... There's no real conclusion and no real introduction. It's just like you're in it, the thick of it, for a couple yeah. of hours, and then you're out of it. That makes all of the commedia dell'arte types that you identified, all of the ridiculous caricatures, they gain a kind of realism. And I think in, you know, in real life people are kind of grotesque, aren't they?
0: No, no, no. no but that, all that stuff I liked. We don't need to repeat the hot mm. tin roof metaphor yeah. two or three times. Like... You said it once, just leave it. So it's just, a lot of this felt very heavy-handed for me. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, I know what you mean. There is a lot of repetition. And
0: I'm not against repeated Mendacity lines. is the system
1: we live in. We haven't even said the word mendacity so far, but they just constantly say mendacity in a way that feels, yeah, on the well, nose.
0: but even the repetition, again, I liked the repetition because they're verbally trapped. Do you like the repetition? So I, I do, it's, but it's I how you say, it's... I I like the repetition. Sorry, sorry. I was, I was actually gearing up. For, okay, so, did, so you see, gen- did you see my bright little face? Uh, to-
1: analysis is more important than naff jokes. Sorry. What did you like about the repetition? Oh, no, what? you don't jump off I'm on
0: They, but I mean this struck me as sort of a, a, almost a genuine portrait of a really fucked up family. Cause yeah. I have relatives who get stuck telling the same stories or airing the same grievances and using the same expressions over and over again, where they almost become jokes to the other family members where you can see like, you've never left your hometown. You're verbally trapped. Mm. Like, can you just get over the thing that happened 40 years yeah. ago? And, but I like that in this, but it's just, it's how it's used. Cause occasionally again, like using the, the cat on the hot tin roof metaphor, we need that once. If you're going to title your play that, you give that to us once, not two or three times. That's tacky. That's the, yeah, that is the funny thing, isn't it? That,
1: And it's when they describe their predicament that it's, it's weakest. I think that's the point that Tennessee Williams is good at that kind of like fly on the wall. Yeah. Naturalistic approach. Like you say, that it does feel like you're looking at some kind of awful provincial mm-hmm. family, but... Yeah, it's when they start trying to articulate their predicament in a way that is meant to be profound that it slightly loses it. Like constantly referring to yourself as a cat on a hot tin roof. The moment you acknowledge your situation, that changes the situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it slightly falls apart. I agree with you.
0: Why does she even want to stay with this guy who so disdains her? Well, we
1: kind of know, don't we? Because she talks about her family background. Mm -hmm. She was a Southern Belle, but her family were like rich in blood, so to speak, but poor in any meaningful sense. And she there's that bit later on where I mean we're going to get onto this but there's a bit later on where she's like showing off about her family having freed their slaves five years before the American Civil War, so I think the point is that and yet she's she a, won't
0: free Brick.
1: Well, that that's does yeah. another reading. But I was saying more that she's she's of noble blood. Brick, however noble he is in spirit, he's not noble in blood because he's descended from a. Overseer that made good, but he's rich. It's one of those situations, isn't it, where she's like, I can, I can get back into. This is my birthright, almost.
0: But she's then talking about all the men in their circle who are presumably also wealthy men, who are really into her, and I'm like, you could probably quite easily marry somebody else. I mean, she talks about how attractive she is. She's young. She, you know. But the millions of acres, the richest acres this side of the Valley Nile.
1: Maybe that he, maybe um, bricks the big prize. And also, I assume that they were talking about sort of just casual infidelities rather than... I assume that the other men were married already.
0: Oh, possibly. But maybe this
1: is me just assuming that. but.
0: Well, and if we also look at how much she talks in that early bit, just yeah. clearly trying to fill this silence. I mean, if we're looking at this from a psychology angle, this is a woman on a razor's edge. Yeah. You know, so you could sort of think, is she pushed to this by her own socioeconomic position and then her husband is totally shutting her out and she... Thinks she's gonna lose everything. Yeah. You talked about setting this all in one room and yeah. it being quite claustrophobic, and that's the point, the idea of privacy and yeah. people constantly bursting in. And the
1: bed being ever present as well. It's, oh, like, it's yeah. their sort of um, big sweet bedroom thing, mm. isn't it? But yeah, so what were you
0: Well, I was just thinking about this being a dark version of the Fado sequence. That's
1: what I wrote, a psycho farce. Yes. That's, we keep that's another... Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but we keep doing that as well, trying to come up with a way of classifying the play, which I think is interesting in itself, right? Yes. So what did... I called it a tragedy of manners. What did you call it? A screwball tragedy. A screwball tragedy. Psycho farce. Fado uh, sequence. Fado, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: you know? we're, we're circling around the same drain so here. So I think... But that's, that's part of the
1: play, isn't it? I think Yes. It, it's... And that is, that's what we've really thought about, the sense of naturalism coupled with these outsized, grotesque characters.
0: Yeah, so for, for those who don't know, the Phaedo sequence, it's a term that was coined in theater in the 1900s, but it the actual, like, what it depicts goes back well... Into the 1700s, if not earlier. So it's basically that sequence that you have, usually in a comedy, where um, it's usually somebody like trying to seduce somebody else, and oh no, somebody bursts in, and I have to sneak out the back door. And it's like its characters Mm. all coming in at the The same time. The
1: vicar's in the cupboard. The fact that the vicar's in the play. Yes. Shows that. Yeah. Williams knows this. So
0: someone hides under a table because oh they can't see me here and I have to yeah. crawl out like so it's it's that sort of like constant interruptions and hiding and you know. So it's someone in bed with
1: their lover and then their husband comes home and then the. Yeah, know, I have to dress you up yeah. as a woman quickly yeah. and you,
0: oh you're my maid and yeah so yeah. but but like, that is very present here just people constantly interrupting and people hiding and people yeah. eavesdropping Dusting and posting in. And, yeah. yeah,
1: we can even even talk about <clears throat> that in a class sense, can we? Mm-hmm. That, because they're sort of they are like aristocracy in the most you know material american sense. well in the sense most material it. sense of that time mm-hmm. right they own millions and millions of acres of land mm-hmm. but the fact that big daddy is an ex hobo or whatever and who kind of worked his way up mm. to be an aristocrat shows that the material truth of the situation they're not yeah they're not noble in the truest sense of that word. so in the same way a farce is not it can't really be a farce because they're not really like living in it fully, are they? They're not fully yeah. immersed in that farcical tradition. And it's
0: way too... this is so depressing yeah. and tragic. As, as much as this is actually a very funny play, especially depending on how you stage it, it's ultimately devastating. Yeah,
1: it's, it's hard to read. I remember, because I, I did this from my A-levels, and I remember just thinking like, yeah, it's about a gay guy. This time around, I'm like... Th- yeah. There's a lot of nastiness and a lot of strange stuff going on. Yeah. This, and
0: I... So here's some advice. This play is partially written in an accent. They, they sort of write out some of the lines phonetically, and occasionally I was a little like, what? So read them aloud. If you can't figure out what people are supposed to be saying, if something's written in dialect, it really, really helps to read it out loud. Now, the clue to the next episode is actually the clue to our next two episodes. Lazy. So we're doing two very famous texts back to back, and they're both titled in similar ways. Blank and blank.
1: The first one kind of doesn't have that as
0: its Well, time. how about you shut your pie hole for five minutes?
1: Okay. Yeah. Oh, I great fun. <laughs> I want to go to bed now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I want to Dan- have a lem sip. We're not sponsored by lem sip. We're sponsored by uh, whatsoever it's called. Measuring worth.
0: <laughs> oh, Whatever. <whatsoever. laughs> oh, poor old Daniel. All right. I'll, I'll yeah. go. I'll make you a milky tea. But, and- but you're
1: ill too. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry into Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at save at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not I'm going to remind you do not forget to rate review and
0: subscribe do not forget thank you